Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 5, we explore the music from one of the most successful TV shows of all time, Star Trek. With six separate TV series making up 30 seasons, yes, I'm including the animated ones, Trek has over 700 episodes of content to choose from. So, as a result, this is just episode 1 of 75. Nah, just joking. Uh, We're channeling our inner Borg and jamming 50 years of music into a single, efficient episode. And joining me on the bridge is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor and envoy to the United Federation of Planets. It's Nicholas Buck. How you doing, Nick? I'm good. I'm Locutus of Buck. (laughs) (laughs) Very happy to be here. Very excited about Star Trek. So uh, let's get cracking. (laughs) That was perfect. And uh, Manning the Con is writer, critic, university lecturer... And for Rengi sympathizer, it's Dan Golding. How you doing, Dan? I'm looking forward to living long and prospering. Uh, but you've done me a disservice because, as we'll talk about, <laughs> I'm I'm not a fan of the Ferengi. It's one of the few Star Trek things. That Man, I'm, I'm I love the Ferengi. Of. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I because because they get redeemed. No. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we are um, making good on our, finally making good on our promise in Art of the Score here that we're going to be checking out not just movie scores, but we're also going to be delving into uh, TV scores. And of course, there is, um, you know, in my mind, there's no bigger, you know, TV series than uh, Star Trek. Um, you know, 50 years of content. In fact, we're in its 50th year at the moment, um, given that uh, Star Trek. Um, started in uh, September in 1966. We are technically in its 50th year. So (laughs) celebrating 50 years of Star Trek. Uh, Dan, what can you tell us about Star Trek? Uh, Well, it's interesting, I suppose. And, uh, you know, you say we're making good on our promise and we really are because, uh, of course, there are all those Star Trek uh, films to choose from. We're intentionally, I think, going to stay away a little bit today and focus on the the TV series. Yeah, that's an important sort of distinction on this one is that we decided... uh, very much that we would just stick to TV only, yeah. And because uh, really, the the music from the TV show is so different to the, yeah, the films, yeah. and, and and you know there is a very good reason why. But mm. uh, yeah, so TV show for this one. Yeah. So Star Trek, it's really interesting because it's been around for such a long period of time. It's really uh, been emblematic for, or at least followed the trends of a number of different eras of TV. I mean, the original series you have really quite distinct episodes that sort of you know, you know they they could follow one another or they could be taken out of order. To some extent, that's similar with Next Generation, but you start to see these different episodes as they're going along, different series styles. By the time we get to Voyager, we start to follow into the sort of the, the more late 1990s uh, mold where actually there's an overarching series goal. Everything's sort of progressing towards... Voyager, uh, the, the the people returning home, uh, all the way to you sort of get, I guess, what you might call kind of a high concept show with with Enterprise, much more slick and, and swish and sort of involved with with I don't know emotions to some extent at least early on, um, and trying to capture that that mainstream audience as you know um, I don't know maybe Alias or other sort of uh, sci-fi shows at the time were doing, um, and so it's really followed through different eras of of TV and how it's made and certainly with the upcoming. Netflix uh, 
Star Trek show uh, that's been in the works at the moment. Yeah. I'm is sure. it a new one? Yeah, yep. It's there been is made. a new one. Yikes. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they'll then follow this new golden age of TV binge watching sort of thing that we're in at the moment. So we'll mm. see yet another different uh, generation, so to speak, of, of TV I, and Star Trek. I feel ashamed that I don't know, know this off the top of my head because I do count myself as a massive Trek fan and nerd. Where's this new one set? Is it after... I'm not Voyager entirely or? sure. No, I'm pretty sure it's um, early. Still prequel stuff. Well, yeah, I'm not 100% sure whether it's before. I'm less excited now. Yeah, but, it, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty much certain that it's not uh, post-Voyager, oh, okay. uh, so it's not, not late in the spectrum. But yeah, I mean, you know, Star Trek has done a whole, whole bunch of really interesting things. You know, in the 60s, it really pushed boundaries of, of, of what kinds of people were on TV. I mean, Uhura, uh, you know, was a, 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 a leading um, black woman, um, which wasn't a, a, someone you saw on American TVs um, at that period. I mean... Um, I sat next to her at a concert last year and I had no idea who she was. Oh, really? And then the MC of the concert said, and welcome, um, whatever her name was. And this lady stood up next to me and everyone was cheering. I felt terrible. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, that's Michelle... Uh, Nichelle Nichols. That's, yeah, that's Nichelle yeah. Nichols. Yes. Um, and I mean, she, you know, um, it tells this fantastic story about how uh, she was going to quit, I think, after the first season and, and sort of actually spoke to Martin Luther King. Uh, and he said, you, you yeah. can't do this because you're achieving so much good in, in sort of showing America who we are and being a role model, um, which is really, you know, and Star Trek featured the first, and this is an interesting thing. A lot of people say it's the first interracial kiss on TV between, uh, between uh, Kirk uh, and I think it is. Uhura. It's Uhura. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's true. It was the first interracial kiss on American TV. There was an earlier one in Britain, um, but, uh, but it's. Do we count that though? <laughs> I, th- I think yes, yes. British TV is still TV, but um, yeah. But it, you know, it's it's pioneered a lot of things, and it has this really beautiful, optimistic spirit um, about the future. Um, and it's sort of you know, there, there are aliens that attack us, and things go wrong. But it, you know, humans humans have got got past the worst of our history, which is a beautiful thing, I think. And that's where I think a lot of people get Star Trek wrong. Um, there's an awful lot of people who believe, uh, who will say, you know, point blank that. I don't enjoy sci-fi. That's not my thing. Uh, but in reality, Star Trek is the least, in, in many ways, the least sci-fi sci-fi show. Like, they don't really care. There are moments where they care about battles and aliens and so on, but they're far more interested in telling stories about humanity through the lens of uh, non-human species most of the time and um, exploring what it means to be human and, uh, you know, prejudices and all sorts of different sort of uh, really interesting things, Uh, but packaged up in a way that sort of fools you into uh, watching, Mm. you know, something where you're sort of, I guess you're being preached at a little bit, but Mm. it's... um, but it's sort of putting a package that's, you know, you can consume it quite easily and it's mm. entertaining. and Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, it, this played into the, the, the spirit of the time as well. 1966 is the first se- series. And, you know, that's when America was starting to transition from its role in the past. I mean, you know, the opening credits to Star Trek is Space the Final Frontier, right? Yeah. And this sort of, you know, America had had this frontier mentality and that a bit played out in popular culture at the time through Westerns uh, and, and, and that sort of genre of movie and TV series, which we'd had, you know, um, Rawhide and all, Gunsmoke, all those TV series. And so there's this real articulation moment in the 1960s where then it becomes science fiction. And Star Trek in particular, I think, really leads that, that shift. Because this is the decade of uh, we're going to put a man on the moon. Absolutely. So yep. the Three entire, yeah, the entire, uh, 
you know, population is is concentrating on space. Mm-hmm. Um, Life imitating art. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> indeed. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me that we move from Westerns yep. into, into sci-fi at and the same time. As I understand it, some of the music from Star Trek has been used uh, as the wake-up alarm in the International Space Station. That's so great. Um, recently <laughs> as well. So, yeah, absolutely. No, There's this beautiful dialogue. Well, let's just, uh, let's get right into it and let's let's go chronologically through these seasons and, and start with, well, actually, let's not go, let's go chronologically in the way that they were released mm-hmm. because fans will understand that Enterprise, which was the last of the Star Trek seasons, was actually a prequel to the original series. I won't get too complicated on that. But anyway, we're going to start with the 1966 uh, Star Trek. And uh, Nick, what have you got for us for the theme here? So look, um, <clears throat> Alexander Courage was uh, employed to create this theme and um, I mean, really set the benchmark for, for where the music and tone of music for Star Trek would sit. Um, Gene Roddenberry, his desire was always to actually move away from some of the more electronic scores that were kind of a bit popular at the time um, that really kind of aliens exterminate, you know, kind of approach yep. and really tackle it from a, more like a sort of a sea voyage nautical atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So, and it, you hear it through all the series, starting with the original series, that the the themes for all these really have that sense of journey, of voyage, of exploration. Um, and, you know, he wanted something symphonic. Um, obviously, budget restrictions can... can sway or, or inflate or negate that that ideal somewhat um, but Alexander Courage you know um, probably most famous for his Star Trek theme uh, went on to become Jerry Goldsmith's main orchestrator um, he did the music for Superman 4 um, mm. I'm not sure of how much he's done before Star Trek um, but this run really sort of cemented his his style and his appearance uh, on, on, on the small screen so let's start by hearing his original theme and then we'll dissect it. Great. And so on and so forth. And so on and so forth. <laughs> um, so really, it's kind of made up of, of three parts. You know, you've got this sort of opening, almost like a kind of metallic sting. You know, this sort of... Uh Which really sort of, you know, it's almost like a little uh, space call. And that's followed by, I guess, something which has probably been reused throughout the entire Star Trek canon more than anything else. Which is, I guess, what we call just the Star Trek fanfare. Um, This sort of... (laughs) 
Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's so simple and heroic in its construct that composers throughout the TV series and the films have yeah. really latched onto that almost more than, than anything else. It's the most Star Trek, Star Trek theme mm. out of the, yeah, like you said, the entire 50 years, it, movies, TV, doesn't matter. And anytime you want to, you know, make a nerd weep, you just throw that in there <laughs> and, um, you know, you... you you mm. missed up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it reflects exactly what we were saying about sort of the, the, the goals and the context of the series in that it's it's noble, it's adventurous. The the intervals, if you look at them, are like they're fourths and fifths, right? Pretty yep. much exclusively. Yep. And then we end, at least on the degree of the scale, on the seventh, right? So, it's really, it's asking a question. Yeah, it's, and it, it kind of it kind of modulates every time. Dum yeah. bum bum, and then we hear a different key. Bum bum bum, and so there's this element of of growing, of exploring mm. new territory every time that kind of motif is sort of heard. Yeah, um, at the start of the start of this piece, mm. and just you know finishing on ups, finishing on you know yeah. it's, it's optimistic. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's looking towards the future with with you know what what exciting thing is going to come next, and what do we want to uh, comment on with the uh, the very uh, 60s, almost 70s, sort of disco-y so feel look, at the once, end there. Once we kind of then get into this sort of this main Star Trek melody, da, 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 da. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are so many things we can that are kind of been thrown into the mix here. Um, I mean, one is is the harmonic language, which is is it's kind of jazz in many ways, um, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but yeah, it has this sort of kind of, yeah, disco, mm. slightly dorky disco beat, you could almost mm. say to it. Um, and the rhythm underneath it is actually what we kind of call, um, it's, it's a dance called The Begin. Um, people might know this from Cole Porter's famous song called Begin The Begin. Mm. Um, and it sort of has this sort of rhythm. You know, and it's basically a dance from the, from the Caribbean area, um, which basically was made famous because of Cole Porter's um, song. Um, and I'm, I'll play a bit of Begin the Begin with the, uh, the Mantovani Orchestra and you'll hear straight away where the influence is. I'm in my my old country town's uh, only Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but look at that that rhythm that you know, it's almost has a sort of um, it's like a kind of Caribbean rhythm meets a French dance mm. or something. There's something kind of sensual mm. about it, and you know the orchestration in the Alexander Courage theme. It sort of has this wailing soprano, mm. you know. That gives it all of a sudden this sort of otherworldly exoticness, almost like it's a wailing theremin. Yeah, yeah, because of course the other, the other big, uh, well, not the other, there were others, but uh, one of the big sci-fi shows at the time, of course, was Doctor Who, uh, with yeah. its theremin theme, uh, and it's sort of invoking that that. Uh, 
which of course was pioneered by our uh, composer from uh, last episode, Bernard Homan, in uh, the day the Earth stood still, using the theremin to yeah. describe yeah. linking our episodes yeah. together. Well, yeah. you know, just, well done, just Dan. Keeping internal <laughs> consistency, um, but that but that rhythm to go back to that. I mean, that's that classic sort of credits rolling rhythm that was used in so many shows in America in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love Lucy. I think uses a very similar rhythm in its in its theme uh, credits, and that's I mean, you know, when you play that. When you play that rhythm, I just want to talk over the top and say, you know, and welcome to our, you know, like it, that's <laughs> yeah. it, that, you know, you just you imagine this. Well, wait is for a, my floor to arrive in the yeah, elevator. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's classic sort of. Um, it's leading to something, but it's not distracting. Yeah, and it's it's very easy going. You know, it's which is unusual and quite a contrast to the fanfare that that the heroic fanfare that precedes it. Um, but, but also like the harmony that Courage uses here. I mean, it's just. It's all jazz chords, um, which maybe was a thing of the 50s and 60s. I don't know. But certainly as the Star Treks have gone on, they've been nowhere near had this kind of influence. Mm. I mean, if I play the chord progression slowly, I mean, we could be in the 1920s or 30s, you know. Piano bar music. Antonio Carlos Jobim song. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you could totally just sort of, yeah, bossing over it. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. And and here we are, folks. Yeah. Mm. Um, And there's actually like that last kind of progression. Um, It's straight out of, um, there's a Christmas carol called I'd I'd Like You for Christmas. Have a listen to this. And he remembers that I'd like you. For Christmas, New Year's, Easter too. I'm stretching the, the French piano. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's I that, that really that, that classic kind of, you know, cycle mm. of fifths, um, roundabout jazz chord progression. I mean, maybe Courage has a big jazz background. I don't know. But look, it's the mishmash, I guess, of all these styles thrown into this one piece is what makes it so unique. And I guess maybe at Star Trek, it's a, it's a mishmash of space exploration with humans, with aliens. It's just sort of, it's a melting pot of culture. Um, and so is Courage's main, main theme. Yeah. And I thought it might be interesting to uh, listen to a, another sci-fi theme that was written a year earlier uh, for the, uh, probably at that time, equally as popular TV show Lost in Space. And it was actually John Williams who wrote this. Um, I can't do an episode without talking about John Williams. <laughs> and uh, it was, I think, maybe his first TV um, score, if not one of his earliest scores in general. Don't quote me on that. It's it's super early, though. And um, there are some uh, similarities, at least, in, in the vibe of it. So here it is, Lost in Space. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it might it might be uh, worth noting as well. You're talking about uh, jazz influences. Well, um, John Williams was actually a, a jazz guy mm-hmm. um, originally, and in fact, uh, on the credits for Lost in Space at the end, when they talk about music composed by, he's not uh, credited as John Williams. He's credited as Johnny Williams. Yeah, um, such a jazzy. Yeah, yeah baby. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Apparently, so this is something that's surfaced recently with The Force Awakens. He calls everybody baby. Baby. Like J.J. Uh, Abrams was to John- Johnny Williams was J.J. Uh, Baby. <laughs> the ripe old age of 80s. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah, look, I mean, the jazz influences, I can certainly hear them. Mm. There's something, I mean, the melody there is sort of, it's a bit kind of psychedelic and it's sort of yeah. groove and um, going all over the shop and that kind of, you know, pop rhythm. Yeah, yeah is, is maybe it's sort a, of jazz chords yeah, yeah a similar thing that it shares mm. with Star Trek yeah. and look that could, that could just be a sort of preference for producers at the time and whatnot. but yeah. uh, interesting uh, let's look at a uh, let's look at a, an actual cue from an episode yeah look um, one thing about Star Trek is that about 16 or 17 composers have sort of contributed um, there may be more f- sort of uncredited but that, that's about the official number over the years and um, guys that probably people have never heard of like uh, Sol Kaplan and uh, Gerald Freed you know they were great film composers of the era but they really did some amazing cues and the first series is interesting because out of the three seasons of the first series only about nine nine episodes were actually properly scored yeah, and all the rest were basically music. just um, basically taken that music and, and temped or tracked over it so our we have slim pickings for the, for the classic episodes mm. um, but one is from the episode called Amok Time and uh, music by Gerald Freed and um, he um, is basically underscoring a battle between Kirk and Spock and uh, we'll play it and then we can discuss the influences <laughs> Give us one word to describe that, Andrew or Dan. Uh, it's danger. I mean, it's, yeah, danger. Yeah. It's uh, uh, jaws-like. It's monster-like, <laughs> right? It's uh, yeah. It's 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 kind of it's dissonant. It's frightening. There's a certain primitiveness to the orchestration there. And I mean, I, I just hear kind of shades of Stravinsky and, and some of that Definitely. really angular music from the early 1900s. And I mean, look, composers just don't write like that these days. I think producers would find it too grating, too harsh. Mm. But at, at the time, I mean, that's yeah, that's the really kind of angry, danger action music that that was really popular back then. But it really matches the scene, though. Uh, I mean, a lot of people these days give the original Star Trek a hard time for how poor the uh, action choreography is. <laughs> uh, you know, the fight scenes are really terrible, and it looks like no one has put any thought into it. But if we take that aside for one moment, the the idea that Captain Kirk has to fight Spock to the death and 
that there's like a real sort of animal instinct about it. You know, they're, they're, it's hand-to-hand combat. Uh, they have weapons, but they're sort of crude uh, weapons. And really this cue sort of shows that, that, like you said, that primitive nature. You know, they're not firing lasers at each other. There isn't sort of a futuristic battle. This is a hand-to-hand combat situation. And I think that cue actually really, you know, mirrors that really nicely. Andrew, we were talking before about the Simpsons spoof. Yeah, so there's um, I can't I can't listen to this music or even watch that that episode without remembering one of the earlier Simpsons episodes where uh, Homer finds himself in a pit, uh, you know, reenacting almost the exact same thing. And uh, this little scene comes in. I wager four hundred quatros on the newcomer. <laughs> So it's all these people making bets on who's going to win. Anyway, it's just this, one of the stupid little Simpsons uh, quotes. But mm. they, they directly lift the music straight out. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas in a lot of uh, the other uh, Star Trek spoofs, they sort of do Star Trek-esque mm. music where it sort of sounds like it's Star Trek, but it's not. Uh, so, yeah, I thought it was just a, a funny little thing that you know, maybe people can remember. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's a great, a great scene, great episode, that one. Let's now hear another cue from uh, episode in season two. This is episode six called The Doomsday Machine. It's music of Sol Kaplan, and it's a bit where Kirk is basically trying to get beamed back aboard. And the music has uh, bits of it reminiscent of another film to come maybe 10 years later, but see if you can pick it. Take back my earlier comment that the, the first piece we played was Jaws like. That was Jaws like. <laughs> Speaking of John Williams, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, there's a bit of a, a bit of the Ben Hur about that as well. I reckon with some of those trumpet fanfares. Yeah, there is, um, and there's a sort of yeah, there's that that dissonance which is always kind of present in there, and and yeah, it's it's danger at the highest level. It's sort of it's really grating and it's relentless. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, you sort of imagine that with like a glorious. 80p studio orchestra recorded in pristine sound these days. Mm. You know, these old recordings, they sort of it's kind of do them a disservice in some ways. Mm. Um, I guess so there's like everything in the old the old films and, and TV <laughs> shows. But yeah, look, you can definitely see how that that is ingrained in that style of that early series, just like the piece by Gerald Fried. So yeah, they're just some of the more iconic, iconic cues uh, from episode or so season one. And two and three of the the original series. And don't uh, you think it's a, it's interesting that they there are so many harsh cues like that. I mean, going through and listening to some of those original series scores of what few there is, 
a lot of them are actually like that. There isn't a lot of sort of nice flowing melodies or even like really heroic stuff. It's it's lots of like they bring the orchestra in for the battle music mm. um, because then there's just lots of talking. Like in the episodes, there's just piles of just engine hum well, and yeah. and people talking through things. And then when the action happens, they throw, throw the music in. Well, if you if you go by your point before that people criticise the original series for the sort of slightly poor action choreography, then I imagine probably what's going on partly here is the music is being brought in to paper up that. Oh, totally. Whereas the music doesn't need to paper up the, the drama because actually they're, they're kind of nailing that. And maybe that's what helped Star Trek sustain itself through this period yeah interesting Mm. let's move on so i guess the thing that we need to say here is that the original series wasn't that successful it was moderately successful Mm. it wasn't that successful then they went on to the animated series but then star wars happened and a lot of people talk about star wars and star trek as kind of having an antagonistic relationship but actually they kind of helped each other in the early years in that George Lucas and a lot of the people on his marketing team deliberately went to the Star Trek community to sort of see how can we tap into this? How can we sort of make Star Trek, a, sorry, Star Wars a success by following the Star Trek sort of community model? And then Star Wars becomes a huge success. They bring back the Star Trek movies rather than the series with, you know, the original and then the uh, Wrath of Khan, the Wrath of Khan. Uh, and then eventually we get to the new series, The Next Generation. And of course, an interesting thing with the Next Generation theme music, um, which was released in 1987, is that they kept the Alexander Courage fanfare, but they melded it with Jerry Goldsmith's theme from the motion picture from 1979, I think it was. A couple of years after Star Wars, anyway. <laughs> so um, let's, let's hear how the Star Trek sound changes. I mean, to me, I think as a kid growing up, this was the Star Trek theme I always latched onto. Mm. Um, maybe it depended on the CDs I had, but I, I think this is an inspired move f- uh, because I think Jerry Goldsmith's theme for that first film was so fantastic. And it really, to me, yeah, it really captured space and the excitement of it. And just his sort of long, he's really kind of those trumpet lines that have those great licks, uh, just so catchy and, and glorious. And like you said, I think it was smart of the studio to to really sort of invoke the movies because the movies were quite popular. And, you know, by sort of saying, hey, Star Trek is back, because there was quite a long time uh, between the end of the original series or the animated series, if you want to include that as well, uh, before Next Gen came in. And so this was sort of like a, a triumphant return, but also giving you something that if you had been watching the movies and you were, you know, sort of in love with those as well, then this sort of allows you to say, actually, it's still the same Trek. This is the thing that you've been watching the, in the um, on the movies and it really sort of connects everything together. It's beautiful how that 
um, fanfare is just slightly altered in the last little performance of it where, as I was saying before, with the original and certainly some of the few performances of it here, it goes to the major seventh, this open question. But just before we get to the new theme for this, it goes to the the minor seventh and it becomes so much more certain and leading into a new key. Uh, I don't know if actually you can play the difference, Nick. I'm sort of, I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, I think, I think you mean... Um There we go. Yeah. It's leading. It's about Rather to resolve than, into something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. whatever the chord is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never actually noticed that. Oh, there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yay for Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's look at. Um, um, look. This this season introduced. I mean, some new composers as well to the mix. And here's a trivia question for you guys: Who wrote the most Star Trek music? Oh. I am going to go ahead and say. Jay Chataway. Yeah, that would be my guess. Uh, it is not Jay Chataway. Damn it. It is actually Dennis McCarthy. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> um, who basically contributed to every single series of Star Trek except the first one. So oh, Next right. Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise. He did heaps. I mean, he did the pilot episode Encounter at Farpoint from The Next Generation. He did the pilot episode of Enterprise and he really became... Even though he's not really well known as a, as a name of a film composer, you know, people say Dennis McCarthy. Unless you're a Trekkie, you might go who? Yeah. yeah. Um, but really, he's he's been around for the long haul, and um, went on to write some of the themes for some of the other series, as we'll find out later. But one of the most, I guess, favorited episodes in the entire Star Trek canon was the cliffhanger to season three, um, an episode called The Best of Both Worlds, part one, and ended with this famous scene of Jean-Luc Picard basically being infected. Is that the right word? Uh, Assimilated. Oh, sorry, assimilated um, (laughs) by the Borg. Mm. Um, And he becomes, uh, you you actually uh, quoted at the start of the episode, he becomes Lucutus of Borg. Mm. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to play the cue uh, written here by Ron Jones, which really left that season on a cliffhanger. And Ron Jones is another fellow who contributed to quite a bit to Next Generation. He had an interesting relationship with the the producers and and had, I was very fortunate to meet him last year. And whilst he enjoyed his time in Star Trek, he really felt and saw the transition from, I guess, where music was a very huge key driver to what he deems to be more uh, subtlety along the way. And he was always fighting the producers for trying to get his music heard and right and, you know, appropriate for the scene and was always kind of facing battles of it being squished and, and sort of dumbed down a bit. But it's really, you could definitely not say that this cue is dumbed down.
That's fantastic. Um, I'm just imagining the scene over the top where <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard is addressing his crew and telling them that, you know, he is now one with the Borg and, you know, everyone's going to be assimilated. So, yeah, that's a really cool scene. What I, what I heard at the top of that that cue is some really sort of metallic mm. uh, sounds in there, which people may not know. that It's used a lot, actually, in film music, especially creepy sort of horror uh, soundtracks. And uh, if you just um, play the beginning of that cue again for me, Nick, we'll, we'll stop it just after we hear a few of them. But listen really carefully for some really sort of high-pitched, um, squealy metal sounds. It sort of sounds like uh, someone scraping up against metal, and that's actually how it's done. It's normally uh, there's lots of different ways of doing it, but uh, normally it's it's some kind of string bow that is uh, bowed over the top of some sort of metal, and there's lots of different like instruments. A cymbal around. or a gong or, or a gong, or yeah, or even crotales or um, all sorts of different sort of little um, metal objects, and it gives you that sort of real squealy sort of thing, and that suits this perfectly because of course the Borg are sort of more uh, mechanical than they are human and um, so introducing all of these uh, you know non-organic sounds into that that cue I think really helps you know sell it and also make it feel creepy at at the same time because really the Borg out of all of Star Trek are sort of the the Star Trek's greatest villains there is no better villain I would even say better than the Klingons yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, they the we should say the Borg were really developed uh, in the Next Generation. They weren't in the original series. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, yeah. and so uh, you know they had they had something to prove because the Klingons had traditionally really taken that that antagonist's role. Uh, so yeah, this sort of musical identity which follows them from Next Generation into Voyager as well, um, of this sort of more synthy, more percussive um, musical musical ideas. And don't forget, you know, technology as far as like computer music had really evolved. I mean, it's 21 years since the original series mm. began. A lot of more electronics had been used. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith was a huge pioneer of using electronics in mm. amongst an orchestra. Um, so these guys definitely would have had that in their arsenal of, of instruments and stuff available to them. Yeah, and there's definitely synthesized all sorts of little bits yeah. you know, in there as well, which yeah. sort of make it cool. Now, going somewhere completely different, um, another favourite episode of fans um, and a really interesting musical one is an episode called The Inner Light uh, with music by Jay Chataway. And it's interesting because it, in, in isolation, it just, it just does not sound like Star Trek. It doesn't really even sound that much like film music. It has a very sort of, I guess, elegant folk uh, element to it. And there's a reason for that, um, which is that... Oh, Andrew, do you want to explain what, what, what instrument is being used here in the... Yeah, in the well, show? there's a... Um, I guess it's like a, a, a tin whistle. Um, it's actually something else. And then I can't the resican like, flute. Resican flute, the there resican, it is. Yeah. But it's, um, it's actually yeah, similar to like a tin whistle. And the reason why this appears in the show is that uh, uh, Jean-Luc Picard... Uh, gets, I guess there's some form of like, it's not mind control. Um, what is they, it? They discover essentially the equivalent of a satellite in deep space and it yes. connects directly into Picard's consciousness and sends him into basically an elaborate simulation of the last 20 or so years of this entire planet's life. I think it's even longer. I think yeah. it's like 40 years or something it, ridiculous. It's, it's yeah. some time, long enough for him to experience in what feels like real time to him. Yeah. Um, 
So he actually of, lives yeah. out the rest of his life. Exactly. In this episode. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. the way the episode is presented is that you think that he has actually been teleported somewhere mm-hmm. and that he's trapped mm-hmm. uh, and he's trying to get home and he realises that he can't get home. No one's coming to save him. Mm-hmm. And so he actually just starts a new life. Yep. He finds a wife. Yep. Has some and kids. Has some kids. Yep. And them. Yep. importantly, learns how to play this tin whistle, this flute. So that's actually that theme. It doesn't play over the top. Well, it appears in the episode, but it Jean Luc Picard is the person playing the melody, mm. and o- that's on screen. On screen. On screen. Yeah. So it's um, uh, the source music, and the correct term, Nick, is diegetic music. Correct. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's one of those rare times. Actually, I say rare times, and now I'm all of a sudden thinking of all these other times when where Riker where plays yeah, Riker plays trombone, and okay. um, Harry Kim plays clarinet. That's that right. dorky clarinet. Anyway, mm-hmm. so um, there's actually this is the beginning of when Star Trek starts saying that its characters can play instruments. Mm. And I guess the interesting part about the episode is that when he eventually wakes up from this, um, he is uh, beyond um, disoriented because he is actually, he's an old man at the end of the episode. He's about to die. And um, he wakes up and he's, no time has passed at all. And he has lived this 40-year life um, in you know, in the simulation, and then he has to go back to sort of being himself again, and he finds that incredibly difficult. But, you know, interestingly, he still remembers how to play the flute. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this flute sits as a memento of his time, you know, this other life that he led, sits actually in his um, quarters for the rest of the series, and it's always sort of on a shelf. And it's actually referred to um, or pointed out quite a few times throughout the rest of the season. And in fact, a, re- a really interesting uh, time happens in, uh, so this is season five when Inner Light happens, but in season six, um, towards the end, Picard starts having a romance with um, Lieutenant Ooh. Commander Nella Darren. And uh, she is a musician and she sort of encourages him to uh, sort of, you know, uh, perform some music with her and they start out by by playing some um, I think it's bark and um, some other sort of little things uh, but then they they go into the middle of the ship and and they say you know oh, let's let's play something together and have a jam do they and, and well that's sort of like this romance thing and um, they're sort of wooing each other at the same time and he says oh look I know this little folk melody and this happens
and that becomes sort of the the soundtrack to them falling in love. But they're sort of playing for each other, and I think it's really interesting that they sort of hark back to that that mm-hmm. moment Bloody. that happened from many many episodes before. It's interesting because the the melody is slightly different from where it is um, in in the first time we hear it. But uh, I was going to point out a link to uh, an existing kind of folk song. I think it's a Scottish folk song, which I. I I heard allusions to the first time I hear it, but having you played that now, it's even more um, <laughs> obvious, which of course is um, the Skyboat song, which kind of goes like this. Um. Yeah. Um, just, you know, classic old Scottish folk song, which many people might know is now used as the main theme for Outlander, oh, the TV right. show yep. um, that Bear McCrary sort of rearranged and it's got singer and whatnot. Um, so obviously, you know, there's that, there's that element of her folkness and, and heritage, which, which Jay Chatterway is trying to invoke there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice cue and it's, it's really been a popular one at, at concert suites and yeah. Because it's one of the rare moments where you get this nice little, it's, it's, Sort of a palate cleanser when you yeah. got a lot of action music. And look, he, he develops it a bit more. I'll just play a bit, bit more of the kind of uh, lush, lush portion of it. So I think one of the interesting uh, things about Star Trek at this period, of course, is that you have these composers who do the actual sort of almost grunt work, I suppose, of the, the actual TV episodes. And then you have someone like Goldsmith who comes in, does the main theme, and then Nick's often does the, the movies, which he was doing at the time. But at this point, then we have Deep Space Nine. And of course, we have Dennis McCarthy doing the main theme for that, who's one of the, the it's composers. It's like his groundwork paid off. Right. So they, they gave him the big gig. <laughs> <laughs> and and so actually, there's a long tradition of that in, in Star Trek in general, that, that people who were just there for a long time ended mm. up being given directing roles and right. producing roles. <laughs> and mm. It's like they, they, it's quite obvious that there was quite a family of, of people that when you were part of the family, you just mm. started saying, hey, you know what, man, why don't you do this? You know, Which yep. I think is cool. Mm. And so this is 1993 when Deep Space Nine begins. So we're into the 90s at this point. Uh, and um, I, I admit I haven't seen a lot of Deep Space Nine. So Andrew, and which is an utter crime. Well, look, yep. Well, actually, let's, let's point this out before we play the, the theme. No, let's play the theme. Let's play the theme. Let's hear it. Um, here's the theme to Deep Space Nine by Dennis McCarthy.
Yeah, there it is. I I really like this theme. It has a very Olympics theme yes. kind of vibe to yeah, it. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, there's sort of, um, I don't know what the word is for it. You know, there's sort of Well, um, I think there's a reason for it. And, yeah, I think yeah. there's a reason for it is that, uh, so you're talking about the Olympics. When you think about the Olympics, what do you think of? National pride and doing good for one. And in country. terms of physical things, you think of the stadium. You think of the yeah. the single, you know, the massive stadium where they're the all guy the guy running with the flag behind. You know, mm. the, the hundred meter runner draped across him. You know, <laughs> yeah, like Usain Bolt, and just mm. sort of in slow mo, the cameras are all there, flashing mm. lights, and that music is playing. Yeah, That's what I hear. and you and you you think of that that sort of that monument to to sort of human achievement, I guess. Yep. And um, that's actually the sort of vibe of Deep Space Nine. It's the first uh, season of uh, or series, sorry, of Star Trek that is not purely based in a ship that's flying around. It's a space station. So really this theme sort of says it's, it's very grounded. It doesn't move, this space station. It stays in the one spot. Mm. And it is the beginning of uh, the, the Federation trying to move out into a different territory uh, because they have spent a whole bunch of time in the Alpha Quadrant, which is where there's Klingons and Romulans and all sorts of uh, those sorts of bad guys. And this is the first time that they start moving into the Beta Quadrant. So there's a, um, there's a little wormhole, but there's, this is sort of the beginning of new exploration. But they use this as sort of a base uh, mm. for new species to sort of come in and out. And um, so it's a very grounded series. Yeah, and like this is sort that. of a grounded theme. Yeah, I mean, know? the whole bass kind of hardly yeah. moves. It's sort of just mm. this long pedal low note mm. while the trumpet, sort of solo trumpet or brass, you know, play their bit over the top. Absolutely, easily mm. the most grounded of all of the, the Star Trek sort of fanfare themes, I think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and like I said, I think that just really matches beautifully. And and, and Dan, I have to scold you <laughs> for, for not watching Deep Space Nine. I originally, I'm a D- Deep Space Nine convert because um, I'm like you and we'll get mm. onto it soon but like you I'm a Voyager guy mm. and um, which is probably blasphemy yeah, <laughs> to sure. a lot of trackers yeah. um, but uh, some of the single best uh, drama or dramatic episodes exist in Deep Space Nine. All right. um, and in fact, that whole promise of um, exploring humanity and exploring what it is to be human, easily the best. Like, you know, nine of the top ten would be in Deep Space Nine. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you've got to get onto it, man. All right. All right. And, and, you know, listeners out there, if you, if you have been turned off by the Deep Space Nine vibe of, you know, I like, I like starships, I like, you know, exploration and so on, you should really do yourself a favour and check this one out. But... With the massive caveat, as I could say, with almost every Star Trek series, it takes a little bit to get going, and <laughs> <laughs> you probably have to get through the first season before it gets good. And uh, but anyway, that that theme I think is sort of really great, and it certainly sort of heralds a new era of um, Star Trek. And is is right at the start there. There's a little fragment of that that original fanfare theme, isn't there? Kind of, yeah. Um- it's, I mean, yeah, look, it's just like a simple noble, you know, fifths and fourths kind of mm. progression there. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, there's a link. I, I, I think we, we sort of talked about it a little bit before we got going, but I mean, it, it's got to be, there's a link with all of them, but this one more so than the others with the fanfare for the common man, the Aaron Copeland. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, musically, you can see it there. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, that that is a very popular thing at, um, you know that that's a very Olympic kind of melody. Yeah. Mm. Is it Channel Seven or the footy here in Melbourne that used to use it. It's the cricket, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's probably the cricket. Yeah. Look, let's hear a bit of fanfare for the common man, just to yeah see where this Star Trek heritage maybe maybe comes from.
So you can hear the musical similarity there with especially the harmony between the two brass instruments that are playing the, the melody in Deep Space Nine. Um, Nick, I don't know if you... Yeah, I mean, it's very sort of force and fierce. Mm. You know, and in Deep Space Nine... You know, it's that similar mm. thing of sort of harmonising in fourths and fifths, a couple of sixths there, but very noble, strong intervals. Well, it makes sense, I think. If this is deliberate, it makes sense because the fanfare for The Common Man, it was commissioned by Eugene Goosens, who spent a lot of time in Australia as well, but it was in America at the time. There were a whole bunch of fanfares. This was a very common thing to, to write uh, nationalistic, patriotic fanfares during the Second World War. So this is in the, the during the Second World War, I think it's 1942 or 43, that it, no, 42 that fanfare for the common man was written and it but it's one of the only ones that's really stayed with us and that i think is largely not because it's beautiful music um it is and that's obviously played a huge part but it really it, it there's an idea there and that is that it, it is for the common man it's actually based on a speech for, for um the vice president of the time henry wallace um who was actually a socialist is the, the highest a socialist has got in the american government who gave this speech about why it was important to fight for the common man, not for the rulers, not for the government, not for the idea of America, but for the common people of America, the the, ta- the taxpayer. And essentially, you know, like I think uh, there's some story about Goosen's sort of mistaking um, this uh, this backstory as sort of being like, you know, a, a hymn for the taxpayer or uh, the hymn for paying your taxes, essentially, <laughs> and sort of supporting supporting the government, supporting everybody around you, the community. And so I think it makes sense that this music kind of sounds a little bit like, given what you were saying before, Andrew, it makes thematic sense. Yeah, I, I think that sort of is the is the vibe of that season as well, is that because uh, the Federation um, of Planets is trying to actually broaden its reach and fight for all sorts of different communities who don't have, and it's very American now that I'm saying yeah. that, um, fight for all sorts of uh, communities who don't have the same sorts of, uh, mm. you know, um, privileges and freedoms that they have in, in the Federation. So, yeah, it's sort of mm. all, all um, working together. It's a fanfare for the common alien. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Now, Nick, um, what what cue are we going to look at from Deep Space Nine? Let's play, um, I mean, there's lots to choose from, but I want to choose one which is, it's an action scene from the episode called uh, The Changing Face of Evil in Season 7. Music again by Che Chataway, who wrote the the music for The Inner Light, Um, but much different vibe. Uh, Jay Chataway was basically a composer who came out of the military and spent years and years writing music for marching bands and all that kind of stuff and this is a cue where you can really hear it and basically his job here is to underscore a crazy space battle so we've got lots of things like sound effects to compete with and it's interesting because if you listen to the orchestration it's either really high or really low there's nothing in the middle and I remember meeting Jay last year along with Ron Jones who both of them decided in a lot of their cues to not use violas at all. <laughs> uh, it wasn't because of the jokes. Yep. Um, it was basically because, uh, basically dealing with sound effects and predominantly the the goddamn air conditioners on Star Trek. They said it always set at this frequency right in the viola range. Wow. So they just thought, let's save some bucks. I'm not going to compete with that with that that constant hum. And um, do, do you notice that he called it air conditioners? Yeah, yeah. How, how yeah. dare you? <laughs> that's that's the warp drive, Nick. Yeah. Oh, not air that, <laughs> oh, they call it the air conditioners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever that that kind of yeah that space hum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Surely, yeah. I mean, yeah. Would it, would it be hot in those ships? I don't know. Yeah. yeah those maybe. suits are really tight. Anyway. I reckon they're going to focus on them being able to breathe <laughs> before being able to be. A, you know, <laughs> a, so a, a, a lot of their music was yeah used the extreme 
streams of the register. And this one is, um, yeah, just, just an example of some action music um, that stretches the, the orchestrational regions. High brass, high strings, and really low, deep celli and trombones and basses and stuff. That's really fascinating. I think, I mean, it just goes to show that film scoring, TV scoring, game scoring, you're always working with other constraints than just purely the drama. Um, That's a fantastic example of of that. And just to sort of really, you know, throw home what Jay was having to deal with here, I've actually grabbed the scene... Out of the uh, out of the movie, so you can hear all of the sound effects and the talking and stuff in there, and just see, you know, when you're handed this this whole sequence and said, "Look, I need you to write some music over this," you can sort of start to hear why he made the decisions he did. So here it is with all of the sound effects. Sir, they've locked weapons on us. All auxiliary power to forward shields. Colonel, attack pattern Delta. Aye, sir. Mr. Ward, quantum torpedoes. Target locked. Fire. Target locked. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, it's, whether, whether it's the sort of, of the spaceships, yep. all that kind of speaking register, you know, of of the male captain or whoever's on the on the on the deck there. Mm. Um, uh, captain yeah. Cisco that, on that particular one. It's it's mm. the, the strings sitting high above it or down low, or the, you know the, the blaring brass right at the top and right at the bottom. Mm. Yeah, and and that's actually similar to the uh, the John Williams uh, thing with the boulder from way back in episode <laughs> one and two, is that idea of using those piercing trumpets to sort of sail over the that mid range rumble of. Um, in the case of the boulder, obviously, the boulder. But um, in this one, all of these starships, uh, you know, flying around with all that engine noise. So, um, yeah, it's sort of really cool. I like it. And I like how he sort of gets out of the way of the talking and then comes crashing back in again. And, yeah, it's sort of – it's nice. It's it's sort of real vintage, you know, just TV composing, you know, just moving with with the action and what's happening. Mm. Mm. And so that composer, Jay Chataway, did also move on to the next series, as did Dennis McCarthy, but – Dennis got the shaft. <laughs> they didn't like his theme. Well, no. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was an <laughs> maybe Jerry. Jerry was available yeah, yeah. now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, with Star Trek Voyager, and that's the uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager are running concurrently at this period of time. Uh, it's I think it's the only time that that's really happened. Well, they overlapped, that is, did they? Mm, yeah, they overlapped. Yeah, and in actual fact, they um, the beginning of Voyager starts on Deep Space Nine. Right, that's right. Of yeah. course it does. Yep. So they mm-hmm. launch. They launch from Deep Space Nine. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. So it's 1995 that Voyager begins. 
Uh, and we have a beautiful, beautiful, fantastic theme. I think his best for Star Trek or the best for Star Trek by Jerry Goldsmith for Voyager. I mean, that's, I, yeah, I think that's fantastic. But it also, once again, thematically works with the shows. We said in the opening, I mean, this is um, the only series, I think, that has an end goal for Star Trek, yes. for, the, for the narrative. Um, and that is Voyager is a ship that is sent way, way, way into the deeps of space through essentially an accident or mischief or whatever you want to call it and has to spend an enormous amount of time traveling home. So that that's the entire arc of the season. Uh, the series rather is for them to get back home. And you can hear that restless movement in the harmony. There's constant harmonic movement in that, in that theme. Well, I'm, I'm hearing all sorts of, you know, I agree, Dan, hundred percent that, you know, it mimics the show because this is the first time uh, since the original series when there is genuine exploration happening mm. mm-hmm. um, in both uh, Next Gen and in many ways Deep Space Nine as well, even though they do a little bit of exploring, mostly because they're they're you know they're stuck in the one spot, there isn't a huge amount. But this is the first time they actually go out into deep space. They don't know what's coming, and um, so when I when I hear that theme, there's a couple little elements that strike me, and that's the little Glockenspiel, the little t- you know tinkly things over the top. Yeah, that are mm. happening over the top, and that. I, it helps sell a sort of um, there's an innocence um, or even like a childlike element to that. And for me, because they're by themselves, there's no federation, there's no backup, there's no nothing. It's just them, their ship by themselves mm. against space. And there is sort of this childlike aspect to it that they're by themselves and they're they're um, fragile. Mm. But then the melody over the top is sort of this, well, you know what, we're going to put our best foot forward. Mm-hmm. We're going to um, really hold on to our, our ideals, um, which once again, Star Trek does such a beautiful job of this, of, of saying, well, you know, what is um, what are morals mm. if you don't have the authority around or even the... Um, uh, the communities around and the culture around to sort of dictate what morals are. Well, what are they if you're mm. out by yourself? And um, this is that theme feels like they've made the decision, you know what, we are going to be, you know, we're going to be human. We're going to be uh, hold up the, the um, ideals of the Federation and we're just going to charge forward like we always have and out into the unknown. And I think it's for that reason, 
it's the best series. It's I, the best. I also agree. I do. Uh, I mean, yeah, and it, it, you know, thinking of that, it's reflected in the melody as well as the harmony. You have probably the largest uh, intervallic, intervallic leaps. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, quite a, it's quite a big kind of yeah. Yeah, there's a large range there. There um, is. Yeah, and it you know it's um, expansive, I suppose. Is yeah. the, the word I would use. And it has um that kind of that secondary kind of section, you know. Uh, it has elements of Goldsmith's um, sort of I guess love theme from the motion picture. That kind of um, Ilya's theme, I think it but is. But it's uh, so much more yearning. That, like this is like yeah. a real sort of like, you know, really trying to strive and achieve and, and, and do your best in, in that sort of little bridge uh, part. So, oh, I love it so much, Dan. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, I agree. <laughs> and and mute, muted trumpets, you know. Yeah, like that's, that's great. It's the, it's the kind of stuff that Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams can get away with and very few other composers, even in the 1990s. It's his nod to the jazz of the original. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> Not doing the begin, but so what? What cue are we going to look at here? So we're going to just hear a little cue by by Dennis McCarthy. Finally, no, he's back. Uh, he's back. Um, this is from an episode in season four called "The Year of Hell," and it's basically got a despondent uh, Captain. Janeway, Captain Janeway, What's her yes. First name, Catherine. Catherine, Catherine. Catherine yeah. yeah. Um, There's a bit of a Hepburn vibe I've always thought going on with, yeah, with totally. Janeway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay, yeah. sorry. Um, just giving a little sort of you know captain's pep talk to a despondent crew, um, but it's you know it's it's come a long way from the I guess the the anguished tones of some of the early series, and we're now starting to get kind of quite emotional cues. And I think that that matches that whole, uh, well, two episodes beautifully because this is the first time, I think, that uh, Voyager is defeated mm-hmm. uh, because this episode um, is, well, there's a time travel element, which is why this is in season four. So, there's why there's seasons five, six, and seven. Um, so, they're not actually defeated. But in the context of the episode, they are defeated and, and Janeway is on the bridge um, I think she's the last person to abandon ship yep. and um, she's going to go down with the ship mm. and she looks around herself and the place is absolutely in ruins. The bridge is destroyed. Uh, the plaque that um, sits on you know, one of the bulkheads has fallen off, which is the first time that's ever happened. And uh, I think she's sort of utterly you know, defeated and, and resigned to the fact that you know, she's going to die, but mm. she doesn't. 
Mm. They save the day. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this this is a really interesting example. I mean, I said earlier when we were talking about the original series, this maybe the the action needed a lift. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that the drama needed a lift, but you got to remember, especially when you're looking back at these um, episodes of the, the 1990s TV, right? Especially today when we think about how TV works, we think about, you know, HBO, lush, great productions, widescreen, HD, whatever. For this, they're trying to get drama out of a four by three Academy Ratio square image. And that's yep. why in a lot of TV series before widescreen TVs became normal in the early 2000s, you have conversations where they look like they're, you know, about to kiss each other or something because they're so close to each other. <laughs> and it's just because you can't fit two people in a frame otherwise yep. and still get the drama out of their faces when, yep. when your average person's TV is tiny and square. And so, you know, with drama scenes like this, as, as Star Trek is starting to move into more mature territory with these really sort of emotional moments, you need the music to really lift that, I think. And that's that's what we start to see with this this kind of score, I think. And Nick, what, how do you think the um, that, that solo track trumpet plays a role in, in something like this. I mean, this. look, it's it's the sound basically of the lonely captain. You know, trumpet has really been a staple through all of Star Trek, um, symbolizing, you know, the heroism and, and I guess the captains through all their different guises. Yeah, and, um, and military in general. Like absolutely. in other movies, you know, the, the, um, yeah, the, the trumpet I mean, is always used for military. The lonely trumpet, I mean, that's, that's it's now a cliche, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a symbol of... Of strength, and when it's played softly like that, um, it can convey strength even in its sort of despondent um, performance. You I know, find it like a defiance. Yeah, like it's a defiance in defeat. Absolutely. That you've you've beaten my ship, but you haven't beaten my you spirit. know my yeah, spirit. And though yeah. you know it has major fifths and those low triads. You know, it's sort of there's a resolution there. It's sort of digging your boots in gently and just mm. I'm, I'm going to stand here and go down with mm. my ship. Mm. It's that kind of thing. And if it, there ever is a captain that is more sort of uh, stoic and defiant throughout the whole uh, series, it would be uh, Captain Janeway. So absolutely, yeah, it just matches really beautifully. Mm. Now, my I've got to say, after all these fabulous composers that we've had through all the seasons, I mean, can there really <laughs> be coming, anyone? Folks. It's coming. <laughs> can there really be anyone better than Diane Warren? been a long road getting from there to here it's been a long time but my time is finally near and i will see my dream come alive at last i will touch the sky and they're not gonna hold me down no more no they're not gonna change my mind cause i Wow, this episode just took a right-hand turn, didn't it? <laughs> so, for those of you thinking your iPod's disconnected and like the radio's come on, and you're listening to Brian Adams. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this was uh, the theme song for Star Trek Enterprise in 2001. Oh, what a tragedy! And um, it's a song called "Where My Heart Will Take Me," uh, written by uh, Grammy-winning and Oscar-winning composer, uh, songwriter Diane Warren. Uh, sung by uh, a tenor called Russell Watson, um, but it's actually a 
kind of reworked cover version of a song uh, called Faith of the Heart, which was sung by Rod Stewart. And it kind of kind of sounds a bit like Rod Stewart, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And that song was Rod yeah, Stewart. That Absolutely. song was written for the 1998 film Patch Adams um, with what's his name, Robin the Doctor, Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, so wait a minute. So we have a theme song here for Star Trek. Um, opening credits. Star Trek is back. You know, I think for a lot of people, Voyager. You know, it lost some fans. It did, which is a crime. It didn't end very well. I did. Yeah. Well, that's true. Mm. And. Um, you know, Star Star Trek is back, mm. and then they roll the credits, and that comes on. Mm. And so, not only are you getting a non-orchestral uh, score, you're getting a pop song. It's sort of cheesy lyrics, but it's not. It's not even original for the for the Star <laughs> Trek. I mean, that's what really sort of incenses mm. me with it is that it's not even original. So like, let's written. commission a, a, a pop yeah. song just to change yeah. the vibe, but still commission it. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. 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 Anyway, I mean, it's sort of it's interesting because. Um, You'd kind of expect them, in a way, to use a pop song much earlier in Star Trek's life. That's um, probably true. Because in the 1960s, uh, you know, that was much more the Vogue, like actually. Like Baccarat or something, you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, think think of the films that were bigger about that time. In 1967, The Graduate, right? Um, you know, which has the amazing Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. And you know, this is in, right? And that's the pressure that's been put on composers to turn their themes their scores into pop songs i mean one thing we didn't talk about last week is bernard herman was multiple times asked to turn his music into into pop songs and actually it did happen with marnie i don't know if either of you've heard uh the 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 marnie um music was turned into a nat king cole song it's amazingly bizarre but (laughs) um but you know so it's kind of weird that you should go through all those decades where that was in vogue and then get to the um you know early 2000s when actually it's it's not really that in vogue. No, it's for TV. And in fact, people are, are switching back to yeah. the more cinematic, you know, orchestral writing at this yep. point. And they go, actually, you know what we need? <laughs> <laughs> this this thing that we haven't been doing. Uh, Does anyone know whose whose decision it was? Just one of the producers, maybe. I guess it must be. I mean, yeah. it reeks of a studio decision. Yeah. A big one. And was it was it popular? You guys are bigger Trekkies than I is. Like, how was the, it the series received? or the song? No, the song. How oh, was the, the song, song received? Was not received poorly. Well. Yeah. Poorly. I mean, I look back on it when you. I haven't heard it for a long time. Um, I listen to that now and just go, eh. I mean, it's like you, it's you're like, used to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I look at it fondly now. Like it's like you've got a a family of you know people, mm. and you know when you grew up, there was that annoying cousin. And then you look back at them and go, yeah, he's all right. Yeah. He's, he's part of the family. You yeah, know, it's yeah, sort of, yeah. I look that's, at it. Go, that's the beauty of TV. I mean, <laughs> I remember growing up, you know, having friends say, oh, I love that TV theme. And as a composer, I used to go, oh, that's terrible. That offends me. Mm, but mm. if you hear something enough, often enough, and it, and it matches with, uh, something you love, like Star Trek. After a while, you're probably going to go, yeah. You know what? This is this is part of Star Trek. This is I love it because it's part of Star Trek. It's yeah. almost so bad it's become good again in my mind. Well, like, I mean, yeah, it's kind of interesting though, isn't it? Is because especially Star Trek is a show that, in so many ways, has consciously tried to foster a kind of diversity um, amongst everything. I mean, this is yep. this is the first piece of music that's a theme song that for Star Trek that's been written by a woman, yep. uh, even though it wasn't originally written for the, the, the series. And, you know, film and TV composition is one of the most male-dominated spaces uh, that I know of creatively anyway, really. Um, and so, I mean, I think this is certainly the first woman composer we've talked about in this show. Uh, yeah, I mean, Diane Warren, like, the only thing I can think of is that, I mean, she had a string of hits 
leading up to this in like major motion pictures. Um, mm. Think songs, you know. Uh, I think it's Celine Dion's famous song, Because because You Loved Me, mm. um, from the <laughs> film Up Close and Personal. She had the song How Do I Live from Con Air. Um, she wrote I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, Great which was song. sung by Aerosmith in Armageddon. Yeah. Was that written for Armageddon? Mm. Yeah. I thought it was written first by Aerosmith and then put into Armageddon. No, like Aerosmith didn't write it. They just Man. sung it. She she wrote it for them. Oh, great. She wrote song There, There You'll Be for Pearl Harbor. Um, all those sort of big action blokey, you know, um, Michael Bay type films. Mm. Um, but she was nominated for Academy Awards for all of them. So it could have just been, you know, studios seeing that maybe this is a – this is a thing we can cash in on, mm. you know. And look, all wasn't bad. That they tried to redeem themselves in episode three, sorry, seasons three and four, by adding a bigger drum beat to the uh, to the to the thing. <laughs> well, check it out. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time. It's like sort of the same thing, but travelling. Yeah, <laughs> a bit, bit, bit more of a groove. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure it helped the people that were really kind of, you know. Oh my God. Yeah. It's wow. just doubling down, isn't it? Yeah. 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 You, you say you hated rock. Have yeah, you considered yeah. more rock? Yeah. <laughs> you just imagine one of the studio guys going, well, let's, let's add some more drums or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah the kids Maybe will love it. Yeah. Mm. But look, um, interesting. What's sort of become an unofficial anthem for Star Trek Enterprise has been the music used over the end titles. Um, which is often referred to as Archer's theme. Um, it's Captain Archer. Captain Archer, yeah. yeah. He's, the, he's the Captain Archer. I, li- I, li- I like him. Scott I like him. Cooler. Yeah. Um, and there was a theme It's because you're a quantum leap guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a theme composed by Dennis McCarthy. And it look, actually has some rock elements in it. It's sort of a drum beat comes in halfway through, this sort of shredding electric guitars. Um, but it starts from a more orchestral base and one could argue that this could have been a more appropriate choice for the main title. So let's let's have a listen to Dennis McCarthy's end title from Star Trek Enterprise. I was on board before the guitars came in. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, because, okay, to try and talk about this a little positively, the, you know, the the vibe of this one is that it's a prequel. It's a prequel to the the original series. So it's set when, I guess, humans are first deciding that they will start trying to sort of explore outside of their solar system. And so as a result, you've got Captain Archer and his crew who really are taking the first step outside of their safety and they're, you know, exploring for the first time and they're super optimistic, but they're like really nervous because everything sucks. Like all of the, all of the technology sucks. The, um, the, you know, the transporters famously just 
continue to just kill people. Um, like nothing works and everything's dangerous. Like it, it feels like, especially in that first season, it's the most dangerous of the Star Treks because there's a lot of actual, you know, present day space stuff in there. You know, there's there's mm. problems with um, working out how to stay warm and, and um, you know, just environmental problems and so they on. Are so air conditioners. In the are you trying to yeah. justify? <laughs> is this all leading to justify electric guitars? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think that that Archer's theme it sort of suggests that. And if I try to speak um, positively about that pop song, perhaps it's the lyrics that helps um, tell that story. Yeah. That you know, um, I've got faith. Um, yeah. Where my heart will take me. You know? Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of you know talking about an optimism. Of, um, look, this is super dangerous. We probably are going to die, but there's something bigger at stake here. And uh, we've got faith that I've got my, you know, crew with me and we're going to go out there anyway and sort of explore the, you know, the universe. And, you know, I think the, those lyrics sort of suggest those things. So I can mm. see why it was, why it was chosen. Mm. And did you have a favorite Star Trek moment? If you're kind of trying to sum up. I do. I mean, as someone who has surely seen every single episode of the TV show. I have seen every single episode. Wow. And uh, I thought to myself, I've got to finish this episode on, you know, my favorite moment from Star Trek. And uh, this would be it. Okay. Great. That's the best moment. No, I'm only joking. No. <laughs> Is that the Simpsons or something? That's the firm. Um, it's. I think it was a one-hit wonder. It was pretty massive in the Great. 80s, I remember. Mm. Um, I remember being in primary school and um, that was on Rage. Mm. Um, and I loved it because I got all the references. And um, <laughs> if you have no idea what that was, just Google the firm mm. and uh, Star Trek. And, and um, there's actually piles of funny quotes from the original series in there. So, in other words, I was, I was, I was having a joke, guys. It's uh, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, 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 I don't think it's the first Star Trek theme to have uh, lyrics. I mean, even uh, Enterprise, notwithstanding, the original mm. theme, I, I believe, had lyrics written by Gene Roddenberry. Although I think there's some contention that he might have done that, intending the lyrics not to be ever used, but so he could claim songwriter credit. But uh, yeah. Yeah. no, do you know uh, that is an actually true story. He yeah. got fifty percent yeah. of the credit. And Alexander Courage was mega pissed off that he yeah. got, only got 50% of the royalties, mm. even though the, the lyrics were never used on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. There we go. There's a um, lesson for all your, you film score wannabes. <laughs> Don't let the director write words <laughs> yeah. unless they are used. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, guys. I think that brings us to the end of our analysis through the awesome universe of Star Trek. Uh, we hope you enjoyed yourself. And if you did... Go ahead and press subscribe and write us a review on iTunes. Um, that sort of stuff really helps us get the word out there. And, you know, tell your friends. If you've got any Star Trek fans who might be interested in analysis of Star Trek, then, you know, send them over to Art of the Score. Um, but if you have any questions about the scores we talk about or you just want to request a score for us to analyse, and a few people have, and um, hopefully we'll get onto those soon, um, just hit us up on Twitter, at Art of the Score, or Instagram, also, at Art of the Score. And uh, we love chatting to you. There's been quite a few people asking questions and... 
uh, we're always happy to get back to you with our thoughts and you know um, have a chat and even just sort of nerd out on this stuff so until next time I'm Andrew Pogson that's Dan Golding thanks very much and he's Nicholas Buck exterminate (laughs) how dare you and this was Art of the Score